1 Corinthians 6. We spoke this morning in the first half of our message about judgment among the brethren. And as we did so, we talked about a, a first reason why brethren should not go to judgment before unbelievers. And you recall, as I began the message, I began with the warning of ideals. That it is often that though we understand an ideal and we preach an ideal and we desire a deal, there are times where that ideal cannot be met. It's not because God is not good or God is not able or God is not willing. But it's because we oftentimes, as humans, bring that element of sin into a situation and therefore it does not become the ideal that it ought to become. Maybe it's on our end, maybe it's on the other end, maybe it's on both ends, but ideals tend to fall apart when the human element is involved. And we talked about the ideal in a, in a manner of speaking this morning, but really I hadn't gotten to the ideal yet. Paul preaches that we ought not to go to, to judgment, to law against a brother, against a fellow saint. Then Paul says, rather, why don't you go and submit yourself to the judgment of the brethren? But even that's not the ideal. You recall we've talked before about that good, better, best scale. On that good, better, best scale, you could say there's no good. There's the bad ideal, which is to go to judgment before unbelievers. We talked about that this morning. And then there's a better idea which is to go to judgment before believers, and then there's a best idea. We're going to talk about that best idea in our third point this evening. And as we understand what is best, I encourage you to allow your mindset to be thinking toward best. Best means the most reliant upon God. Best means the most death to self and the most alive unto Christ. And as we get to best this evening, your heart is going to chafe at best. You're not going to want to hear about best. You're not going to want best. You're not going to want to do best. But it is what's best. And so we looked at a spiritual reason this morning. We're going to look at an evangelistic reason next. Why is it that we should not go to law before unbelievers? The first reason was spiritual. Because we are going to rule and reign with Christ. And if you are going to rule and reign with Christ, then do you not have more judgment than an unbeliever in any case? Because you understand the spiritual element? You say, well, pastor, I'm not a wise person. I don't have a lot of, of, of that, that, earthly wisdom, but that's not what Paul was speaking of. He was speaking of the ability that you have, not because you're something smart or special, but because the Holy Spirit is in you, you have the God-given ability to judge in a way that the unbeliever doesn't. Well, we'll talk about an evangelistic reason next, and then we'll talk about that obedience reason, the best. And I encourage you to prepare your hearts to receive it and then to believe it. So we looked last time at the spiritual reason why we need to keep judgment among God's people. 
As we weigh our earthly interactions against our spiritual realities, we see that we are positionally capable through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand circumstances and to judge them spiritually. So when we submit ourselves to the judgment of unbelievers, we are doing so at the expense of the spiritual outcome, that spiritual reality which God has established in our lives and expects us to live in. In our application, we also extended this principle beyond simply legal judgment, you recall. We talked about the spiritual problems of going to secular counselors, of going to um, secular psychologists, those who have no capacity and no interest in considering the spiritual factors involved in a believer's mind, heart, and actions. The second part of our message is the two other reasons. And let's look at them together. Let's look at the evangelistic reason as we begin in verse cha- uh, uh, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians verse 4. We talked about it a little bit this morning. Paul says, If ye then have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goeth to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. He says, If ye then have judgments of things pertaining to this life. I bring to your attention, first of all, that Paul is indeed speaking of judgments pertaining to this life. Perhaps as I was preaching this morning, you thought, well, of course, Pastor, when you have a spiritual judgment, you're going to go to to the believers. Of course, Pastor, when somebody is trying to judge between a doctrinal problem and there are people wrestling over their understanding of of salvation, or there are people wrestling over their understanding of, of the last days, or there are people wrestling over some biblical issue, of course you go to the brethren and you don't go to unbelievers for judgment. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Very clearly in this passage, he speaks here of the fact that he is speaking of things that are pertaining to this life. He's speaking of the cars that you own and the house that you that you own and he's speaking of the clothes that you have and he's speaking of the places you go and the things that you do, the things that pertain to this life. He's speaking of your, your trips to go shopping. He's speaking of uh, within the confines of, of the church. He's speaking of those physical elements of the church, the finances and the color schemes and the chairs and the walls and, and the carpeting or the wood floors or whatever it is. He's speaking of things that pertain to this life. And he says, in regard to things that pertain to this life, I am telling you, do not go to judgment before unbelievers. He says it would be better, as we spoke of this morning, for you even to set before you the least esteemed in the church. Literally those that are despised or those that are set aside. There are those in the church who would say, you know, I'm, I, I just, I don't feel qualified for, for anything. I, I don't understand enough. I don't know enough. I don't, I'm not smart enough. I, I'm not capable enough. Those ones. He says it would be better for you to set those ones before as the judges, as opposed to going to unbelievers. And why would this be? Well, first, because we have the Spirit of God indwelling, but second, and this is the second reason that we're looking at, because there is a shame that comes with presenting such issues before the unbelieving world. There is a shame that comes with presenting spiritual 
the problems among, among the believers to an unbelieving world. And this is what he says in verse 5. I speak to your shame. These circumstances in the church were shameful. And they were shameful for two reasons. The two reasons are found in verse 6. Brother goeth to law with brother. That's the first reason. The second reason is that brother would go to law with brother before unbelievers. Let's think about this point together. The shame that it is for a brother to go to law against another brother before unbelievers. I've asked this question before. I'll probably end up asking it again someday. Why are you here? Why are you on this earth? I do not believe there is anyone outside of my two-year-old daughters in this room who is an unbeliever. As a matter of fact, I have heard the testimony of each person in this room other than my two-year-old daughters. And I'm convinced that everyone in this room is an unbeliever. I mean, is a believer, excuse me. No, not an unbeliever, is a believer. Here we go. Why didn't God take you the moment you got saved? The church will be raptured out one day. Why didn't He rapture you the moment you got saved? After all, we're going to stand in the heavenlies one day unreprovable, unblameable in His sight. We already have the guarantees of adoption, of inheritance, of righteousness, of ruling and reigning with Christ. All of these things are ours by virtue of our salvation. So why leave you here? We've talked about it before. Because you have a job to do. You are now a light to the world. Last week we talked a little bit about Matthew 5.14 when we talked about the limits of separation. In this text, Jesus tells His disciples that they are the light of the world. That they need to place their light on a candlestick. That their city needs to be set on a hill, not under a bushel where no one can see it. Not hidden from the world. If God wanted you to hide your light from the world, He would have taken you from the world the moment you got saved. But that's not what He wants. He wants you to shine the light into the world. And as the, as the world sees you, He says in Matthew 5.14, they see your good works and they glorify your Father which is in heaven. They see the light and they say, that is a light. That is of God. I need that light because I'm in darkness. The fact of the matter is this. Believers aren't perfect people. We don't need to pretend that we're perfect people. But we are a light to the world. And we don't need to be showing the world our faults when we are attempting to be a testimony to the world. When two brothers are contending one with another, the last thing we need to do is air that dirty laundry to an unbelieving world that is looking for any excuse to reject Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that we be hypocrites. I'm not saying that we pretend there's nothing wrong when there is. But what I am saying and what the text is saying is that we don't need to go to the unbelieving world 
we should settle it in-house. You know, this happens in a family situation too, does it not? You and your family desire to be a good testimony as a, a believing family. There's no one that believes that any family in this room or outside this room doesn't have problems. We all have problems. Families, siblings bicker and argue. I have never seen Caitlin and Caleb argue or bicker or fight. But I bet it's happened before. And I bet it'll happen again. And the fact that I've never seen them bicker and argue and fight is not a bad thing. The Premans don't need to come over to my house sometime and say, watch them fight for me to know that it happens. They have a testimony to uphold before this church, before this world, before their family. And a part of that testimony is the fact that their children are going to have good behavior. And if they've got a problem, they're going to settle that problem in-house so that that problem doesn't have to reach beyond the walls of their family. And they can be the testimony they ought to be. Well, the church is the same way. When we have a problem, let's settle it in-house so that the unbelieving world does not have to look at another Christian who claims the name of Christ and then drags his name through the mud. We're not going to be perfect people. We, we, we don't need to pretend to be perfect people around the world. But we don't need to exalt our faults, elevate our faults, or put little arrows on our faults and say, look, here they are. I'm a faulty person. We're a faulty church. We're faulty people. We don't need to do that. And so there's an evangelistic reason because we are to shine as bright as we can shine. And so he says, it is utterly a fault. Look, verse 7. Now therefore, it is utterly a fault among you because ye go to law one with another. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What words are missing from his statement in verse 7? Now therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. He didn't mention unbelievers in this phrase, did he? He talked about going to law against un, uh, uh, before the unbelievers in verse 6, and he talked about it in verse 1. He said, well, perhaps the implication is there in verse 7, perhaps, and I, I'll grant you that. But notice what he continues to say in verses 7 and 8. Here comes best. You ready for it? Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Paul has just upped the ante. He says this idea of going to law against a brother before unbelievers is absolutely an, an utterly faulty idea. But you know, there's something even better than taking it before the judgment of the brethren. 
There's something even better. And this is our, our third reason that Paul's speaking of. There's a spiritual reason because positionally we are in Christ and we will rule and reign with Him. There's that evangelistic reason that we don't need to air our dirty laundry before the world. We don't need to go to the world and say, look at how many problems we have. But there's also an obedience issue here. And the fact of the matter is, all throughout the Scriptures, the Scriptures teach us that we are to take fault, absorb them, long-suffering, patience, the love that covers a multitude of sins. We'll talk about it in our application this evening. This is the obedience level, the obedience reason, and this is the hardest one of all. But it's the most important one of all. Why not rather take wrong? It would be better for every believer involved if instead of going to law against a brother or if instead of even going to judgment before the saints, you simply absorb the wrong that's been done against you. It would be much better for the church in the eyes of God if you would suffer yourself to be defrauded rather than seek to obtain justice among believers or unbelievers alike. Paul says, but rather than absorb the wrong, rather than take the wrong, rather than be willing to, to suffer that wrong, you go out of your way to get justice and in doing so you are wronging your brother. You are defrauding your brother. You are at his expense seeking justice for yourself. You're seeking to be justified that you were right and he was wrong. And in doing so, instead of absorbing the wrong, you're handing out the wrongs. Instead of allowing yourself to be defrauded, you are defrauding. He says we should rather take the wrong, suffer ourselves to be defrauded for testimony's sake, but also because this is what God has commanded us to do. Let's apply today. This morning, we applied our first point by saying that we need to weigh earthly actions against the spiritual reality that we are in Christ. We're going to look at two more points this evening as we, we apply the two points we've learned about. The first, that we need to weigh our earthly actions against our spiritual testimony. And the second, that we need to weigh our earthly actions against spiritual obedience. So let's cover them together. Weighing our earthly actions against our spiritual testimony. And I begin this time by showing you 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. This verse tells us, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You, the moment you were saved, are became a new creation in Christ. That doesn't mean that your sin nature went away but that there is a new nature born in you that is stronger than your sin nature. What a blessed concept. That there is something in you, greater is He that is in you, the Scriptures say, than he that is in the world. There is, through the Holy Spirit's indwelling, a power for you to overcome sin. In Peter, Peter teaches us this about the church. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. That, for the purpose, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. We became a new creation the moment we were saved, and we became a creation with a purpose. Je- <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus didn't rapture us because we became this, a chosen generation. We became a royal priesthood. We became a holy nation. We became a peculiar people. We'll talk about this more in a couple of weeks. And we became that in order that we should show forth His praise. Shine it into the light. Shine it into the world. Be a light in a dark world. Be that flashlight that we talked about last week in our Limits of Separation message. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23 tells us this. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye servants of men. I'm taking you down a path here. We're kind of going from cobblestone to cobblestone. Have you ever been on one of those? I used to do this a lot as a kid. Uh, and we had a ditch in our area and it used to fill with water and there would only be stones. And we'd have to jump from stone to stone to stone. And you had to go in the right order because if you tried to skip a stone, you'd end up in the water. And so we're going from stone to stone to stone here. You are a new creation. You are a creation created with a purpose, but you are a creation that was bought with a price. And so because you were bought with a price, you are not to be a servant of men. You are to be a servant of God. Now, there was no obligation the day you got saved. Paul clearly tells us in Romans chapter 5 that we were not saved into a, a salvation of debt. We were saved into a salvation of grace. But because you were saved into that salvation of grace, you ought to recognize the one who bought you. The one who paid the price. Our new creation happened by virtue of Christ's redemptive sacrifice. He purchased your salvation with His blood. Let's continue on these cobblestones. God, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. We see that Jesus Christ is the final and the complete communication of God to man. And as we reflect God's Word in our lives, we become the means by which God communicates Himself to the unbelieving world. How shall they hear without a preacher? Right? How shall they hear without a preacher? I give you all of these verses... We go cobblestone to cobblestone for me to ask you these questions this evening. When the world looks at you, do they see God? Do they see the Gospel? Do they see Jesus Christ? When the world looks at how you represent your faith, what do they think about the God that you serve and the faith that you claim to believe? When you take a brother to court to get justice before unbelievers. What do all those unbelievers in that court system think of you and the God that you claim to serve? When you go to the secular psychologist with the same hopelessness and depression and anger and resentment as the unbeliever, what do those secular psychologists think about the truth of God that you claim to serve? What was made new if there's nothing new about you? Now this is what I'm not saying this evening. I am not saying that we as believers ought to be pretend that everything's okay when it's not. 
I'm not advocating Christian hypocrisy where we act one way in the eyes of others and another way when we're alone with other Christians. I am not saying that Christians don't need help sometimes, counseling sometimes, guidance sometimes. As a matter of fact, I think we need it every day. In the multitude of counselors, there's safety, right? I'm not saying that you should not seek counseling when you have problems and issues and needs. What am I saying? What I am saying is that our problems should never be a distraction to our testimony in the eyes of unbelievers when they don't have to be. That when we as believers are going through these problems and these spiritual problems that are clearly contrary to God's design for the believer, we should do everything in our power to solve those problems internally and biblically lest the testimony of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be damaged by the open declaration of our sin to unbelievers. I'm also saying that when you need help, this help will have a spiritual element to it. So let's take Paul's advice from our first point and recognize that we need to get spiritual help when we have mental, psychological, emotional needs. There's a spiritual element to it. And so, as we apply that evangelistic element, it's important we understand how, how our testimony is affected by our actions before unbelievers. So we need to weigh our earthly actions against our spiritual realities. We need to weigh our earthly actions against our spiritual testimony. Third and finally, and most importantly this evening, we need to weigh our earthly actions against spiritual obedience. I told you already that the, the reality of taking the wrong, of being defrauded, is a spiritual, a biblical command. Let's look at that command together. Jesus Christ teaching in John chapter 13 and He says this, By this shall all men know that ye are My disciples. How is it that the world around us will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ? If we have love one to another. This is the definitive mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Love among the brethren. This is not talking about us going to third world countries and feeding the poor. This is not talking about those elements of, of social justice or of charity to the lost world. The means by which Jesus Christ says, others will know that ye are my disciples is when you have love one toward another in this group right here. He says in 1 John, this is um, John writing, the same man that wrote the Gospel of John in regard to what Jesus was teaching in verses 7-8 through of 1 John 4, he says this, Beloved, believers, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. All throughout Scriptures, Believers in Jesus Christ are advised by God to be men and women characterized by a willingness to suffer physical wrongs for the sake of spiritual and evangelistic benefits and effectiveness. Please take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 in your Bibles.
we're going to begin reading in verse 38, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Jesus Christ teaching here, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Sounds like going to judgment before unbelievers, right? But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy cloak, thy coat, excuse me, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain or two. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute the, your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. See, there was a problem in Corinth where they were settling their disputes before the civil courts, taking brother to law against brother, deciding before unbelieving judges to get what was theirs. But the problem began when both parties refused to suffer the wrongs that had been committed against them, refused to forgive their brother, refused to be taken advantage of in order that they might be a proper reflection of the love of Jesus Christ that has been shown unto them. Their true failing did not begin the day that they said, I'm going to go to court before an unbeliever. Their true failing began the day that they refused to love one another as Christ had loved them. Turn with me now to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. I will begin reading in verse 10 and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, verse 18, live peaceably with all men. What a verse. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. Just let it go. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with what? 
more evil? Overcome evil with the court of law? Overcome evil by making sure that you get your just recompense? Overcome evil, he says, with good. Paul instructs believers to interact one with another and to strive for peace when possible at any cost. To leave vengeance to God alone. To overcome evil with good. The greatest solution to the problem of people going to law one against another is not to take it to fellow believer. That's better. That's the better solution, but not the best. The best solution would be that the two parties would suffer the wrong, strive for peace, and allow God to judge between them on the day of judgment. Do you know that when somebody does a wrong, whether within or without the body of Christ, God sees it? God will repay, he says. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Don't think that that believer is going to get away with what he did just because you're going to forgive him his wrong and be defrauded. Don't think that that believer is going to get away without any recompense simply because you are not holding him accountable for how he hurt you, how he defrauded you, how he maligned you, how he... whatever the case may be. God saw it. God will repay in accordance with God's justice. God tells us as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Two more passages, I believe, this evening that I'd like you to turn to. First is First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse 11. We'll read through verse 15. Wherefore, Comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as also ye do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, Be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. To all men, yes, but notice how often Paul emphasizes among yourselves. He's talking about um, both those elders in the church, the leaders of the church, that those leaders in the church are supposed to be highly esteemed in love for the work that they do. And then he says, oh, by the way, have peace among yourselves. Particularly among yourselves. One more passage. Thank you for bearing with me. First Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. I'll begin in verse 8 for context, though I only have verse 9 up on on the screen for you to turn to. Verse 8 says, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. 
You are called to bless those that would do evil against you, knowing that you have been called unto a greater blessing for your sacrifice. And I put up there 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, although it would have been the easiest flip for you, I suppose. Above all things, he says, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. If you are exercising the love of God one toward another, those things, those blind spots that we all have in our lives, those areas in our lives where we look at one another and we say, that's a problem, will be covered. Because our charity will override it. Our love for them will override it. To whatever degree you are willing to exercise true biblical love, to whatever degree you are willing to take the wrong without offense, to whatever degree you will suffer to be defrauded and to be misused, to whatever degree you will love others even when you see no love in return, you will cover a multitude of sins. But even then, even in that circumstance, it really shouldn't be that way, should it? You shouldn't have to worry about being defrauded among your brethren. You shouldn't have to worry about being misused and abused among the brethren. Because if you are loving others that way, and they are loving you this way, then there will be no defrauding. Then there will be no misusing. Then there will be no hurting. Because if we are all exercising God's example of biblical love one to another, then there will be no contention. That's best. That's not easy. That's not easy. But that is best. This is the ideal that Paul stresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1-8. through 8. If you will but be willing to yield yourselves to the principles of fervent Christian charity, the vast majority of conflict will fall beneath the joy of that peace that we sang about just a few minutes ago. And Christian offense that can only lead to a marred testimony for Jesus Christ will become a Christian testimony that cannot help but proclaim the truth of God's Word to the world around us. As we close this evening, let me ask you a few questions. How are you doing this evening? How have you been handling offenses, whether from the world or from the brethren? Have you failed to exercise the kind of patience and love that God has called us to live in the verses that we have seen tonight? Are you so intent on finding your own version of justice in this life that you have been willing to run over the emotions of anyone and everyone to get the vindication for your, what you see as justice for your justification? Husbands, Yes, that's me this evening. Are we so intent on proving to our wives that they're wrong in that dispute, that we will stick the knife of cruelty into her and just keep twisting it and twisting it until she finally says, okay, you win. Until we finally feel vindicated. Wife, 
Do you simply refuse to forgive your husband hoping that your coldness toward him will punish him until he meets your definition of being sorry? Church member, has that other member done you wrong so that you spend your time and energy turning others in the church cold to them or you keep your mind so constantly cold to them hoping that they'll crack under the weight of the offense that they have caused to you? Employee or co-worker, do you seek personal restitution at any cost in the workplace? tirelessly asserting your right to personal satisfaction from that offense or that injury or that oversight. All of these responses, Paul says, are unbiblical. He says if there must be a third party, if there must be arbitration, if there is something that simply cannot be settled for one reason or another, at least settle it quietly among believers. But better yet, Let's hit that next idea. Let's bump it up a notch. Why not simply take the wrong? Why not rather suffer yourself to be defrauded and thus allow your charity toward your brother to cover the multitude of his sins? Suffering ourselves to be defrauded is the biblical ideal. Can you believe that? What an unhuman thought. <laughs> what a divine, divine concept. Isn't that what Christ did to you? Didn't He suffer every indignity? Every pain? Wasn't He defrauded even of His very life for the chance that you might just one day hear the Gospel and accept it and believe on Him? For the chance that you might just be able to be saved from your own rebellion against Him? Do you know that Jesus Christ won us to Him by suffering and being defrauded? Should we not do the same? Do we not have enough faith to follow the example of our risen Lord as He was suffered to be defrauded for us as He took the wrong for us. Can we not live that kind of a life among each other, much less among this unbelieving world?